0: Father, throughout all of history, you've called your people to be faithful witnesses to your character and nature as Creator and Father, and since Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the salvation that comes by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. There may be no other time in the history of this nation where we have had such a high calling, Father to be faithful witnesses in the midst of such overwhelming darkness. We know that you have equipped us, Father, with your word, certainly with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer and the power of your people, the saints, working together to be those very witnesses here in San Jose and throughout the world. And so I pray, Father, this morning that you would be pleased to encourage us, to give us the same encouragement that your Son gave to Paul as he was sending him off to Rome. Give us an encouragement, Father, that enlivens our testimony, that makes us bold as faithful witnesses to the power of the gospel to transform sinners like us and to transform those in our lives who have yet to come to a saving grace. I pray, Father, that you would use us as only you can in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and even in this church, Father, to rightly live out this high calling of disciple of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would not be discouraged with the shortfalls and the sins that we struggle with, but we would see clearly that our consciences are cleared by Christ and that we can confess our sins and that You will forgive us. I pray You would empower us with the knowledge of the hope of the resurrection, that the end of this life is not the end of our lives in Christ, but that You have given us a great hope that should cause and change the way we live right now. Father, we're asking you to do by your Spirit that which only you can do, and not leave us complacent, to cause each of us to take very seriously this calling as disciples of Christ, to not be religious people, certainly not like the Pharisees, but to take every day as a serious day and a precious day to be a faithful witness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Until you call us home, or until he comes in glory, and so I ask that you would be glorified and honored this day to that end in this church and in all your true churches throughout the world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Equipped to witness. If you have been with us in listening to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, um, we've said over and over, this is not to testify to Paul's strength. This is to testify to the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostle Paul. The same Spirit that dwelt in Him him, dwells in you. Now, as a Christian living here in in the San Francisco Bay Area, in one of the bluest areas of the bluest states in this now ever-changing blue nation, you face challenges that many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of this country, they do not face. To be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ, you face challenges here maybe in your own home, certainly at work, certainly in the, in the neighborhood, and we see it politically and economically as well. We face challenges that, um, that at times seem overwhelming. Paul was no stranger to such difficulties. We've seen that as we've traced his footsteps in his past three missionary journeys, and now as we find him here in Rome. My hope from this narrative, and it is a powerful narrative, and I hope one that you find encouraging, not discouraging. My hope is that we can glean from the Apostle Paul how we too, by the strength of Christ, be faithful witnesses regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how hard it is for you at home or at work or here in the South Bay. If you remember, we left off with Paul. He was in chains, and he had just declared his Roman citizenship, and as a result, he was able to uh, not be illegally flogged by Lysias. Lysias, if you remember, he was the Roman tribune charged with keeping the peace in Jerusalem. And he's having a rather tough time of it. There was a riot. He doesn't know why the riot took place. He arrests Paul. He finds out Paul's a Roman citizen. He's very frustrated because he doesn't have answers. He thinks Paul's up to something, but he doesn't know what. Um, and he's afraid, as we ended the passage last week, because Lysias had put Paul in chains. And then he was about to have him flogged, and as a Roman citizen, that was a big no-no. And so, Lysias has this great idea, and it was a bad idea. Lysias has handled this thing poorly from the very beginning. He decides to call the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body of the day, of Paul's day. And he's going to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin, thinking, you know what? This is a Jewish issue. It surrounded the Jewish temple. Maybe the Jewish Sanhedrin can give him some answers. So look at verse 30. He says, On the next day, so this is the the day after the riot and the arrest and the potential flogging, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, Lysias, unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and he set him before them. So Lysias brings Paul before the Sanhedrin, not as a prisoner and not even to put him on trial. So be really careful. This is not a trial of Paul before the Sanhedrin. Lysias wants answers. He has no idea what's going on. He's charged with keeping the peace. So he's hoping that the Sanhedrin will give him some answers, and he will get no such answer. Similar to the riot that took place with Paul and the Jews the day before, um, we're going to find the Sanhedrin was quite volatile also, and they break out into a fight, literally a fight. And so um, Lysias and the Romans have to save Paul again, uh, again. Um, What I want us to see is how Paul stands firm. How Paul, in the spirit of Christ, is able to stand firm as a faithful witness before a gathering of men who certainly wanted him dead too. And we can do the same today, and here's your great word of encouragement. We can do the same today because the same God who indwelt the Apostle Paul dwells in you. You have the same power to be a faithful witness regardless of your circumstances. God has given to us, as he, as he gave to Paul, one, a clear conscience, two, the hope of the resurrection, and three, the courage to be strong. Just as Paul had, you have a clear conscience, the hope of the resurrection, and the courage to be strong. I do believe those are sufficient, my beloved, for all of us, even living in this most blue place, to be faithful, bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. The theme of the sermon is this. God has equipped you to be a faithful witness where you are. God has equipped you. Past tense, if you're united to Christ, he has equipped you to be a faithful witness right here where you are you are. Point number one, God has given us a clear conscience. Now, as you know, this is a narrative, and so it, it should be story-driven. I want it to be story-driven, so listen to it, enjoy the story, and then try to draw out, and I will help you with that, but do the same. Try to draw out these, the biblical teachings, the doctrines that cause us and should compel us to try to live as faithful witnesses. A clear conscience. So Paul finds himself the next morning, the day after the riot. And the day after being potentially flogged, he finds himself before the Sanhedrin, verse 1, looking intently at the council. Now, there's lots of debate as to what that meant, but I think Luke communicates this idea that this is the first time that Paul is standing before the same body that used to send him out as an executioner against the church. So last time Paul stood before the Sanhedrin, they were giving him orders to go and find men and women Christians to have them arrested and persecuted and possibly put to death And now here's the Apostle Paul gazing upon this same ruling body, not as a persecutor of Christ, but as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a most profound moment. Look at the latter part of verse 1. Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, I I want to understand why he said that. Paul had been accused by the riotous Jews, the Jews from Turkey, the previous day. He had been accused of being anti-Israel, anti-law, and anti-temple. And that's what they were saying, and that's why the riot started. They even accused Paul of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, into the uh, Jewish courts inside the temple. Um, Paul was able to stand before them and say, Listen, my conscience is clear because I'm not anti-Israel, anti-law, anti-temple, and I did no such thing with this Gentile. In other words, he could say their accusations are completely false. Now, the corrupt high priest Ananias, he has no interest in hearing Paul speak at all. In fact, we're told in verse 2 that the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by Paul, him, to strike him on the mouth. Now, this is not the same Ananias as the Gospels, and this is often confused. This was the, this was the son of Nebadaeus, and he ruled so Ananias, this Ananias ruled as high priest from 48 to 59 AD, some years later after the Ananias of the gospel. Now Josephus tells us, he describes this Ananias for us, and he, he was not the type of man that you would want seated in any position of power, let alone high priest over God's people. Josephus says that he was ruthless, he was a Roman sympathizer, he was rich, and he used assassinations to, uh, to keep his power. This is the high priest. Of the Jewish people, assassinating people to keep his power. Um, And it's unlikely that he struck Paul because he cared much about Paul's Christian beliefs or even that Paul thought he had a clear conscience. He very likely just struck him because he wanted to illustrate his power before Lysias, before Paul, and before all those who were present. Paul has a passionate response. Look at verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? You say, well, is that Paul loving his enemies? Because I don't think so. No, it absolutely is. Paul is, wants to cause this man to have the right fear of the Lord in him. He doesn't know he's the high priest, but the words he says are true. Whitewashed wall, whitewashed tomb. The term whitewashed, was a, it was a phrase at the time used to describe a hypocrite. Right? So you would take a wall that was destroyed or that didn't look good, and whitewashing is paint, white paint. And it looked good on the outside, but it was crumbling on the inside. And so he's saying to Ananias, and it's a fitting title, he's saying, you're a hypocrite. You, you're supposed to be judging over this particular proceeding. And instead of judging according to God's law, you order me to be struck without a trial, without an accusation, without witnesses, without a verdict, and yet I am being punished before you. And so he rightly calls him a hypocrite. According to Jewish law, similar to, well, I guess how it used to be here. I don't know how much anymore that that we're supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Uh, Leviticus, in fact, we get that from Scripture. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in your courts. No injustice. So we are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And as a Roman citizen, Paul not only enjoyed... He enjoyed, obviously, the protection under Jewish law as a Jew, but under Roman law as a Roman citizen. And so Paul says, God is going to strike you. It was meant to strike fear into the heart of Ananias to get control of these proceedings and rule them according to God's law. But if what Josephus writes about Ananias is true, there was prophecy in Paul's statement as well. According to Josephus, the insurrection that led up to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. It started some years earlier. And in 66 A.D., the Jewish insurrectors, they, they did not like Ananias because he was pro-Roman and he was corrupt. And so Ananias fled in 66 and he was hiding in an aqueduct, according to Josephus, and the insurrectors found him, they took him out, and they had him executed. So in some ways, Paul was speaking prophetically here to this corrupt high priest. Now look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Would you revile God's high priest? Now, Paul, is a, he's, he's rebu- rebuked, rightly so, for his statements that he made, even though the statements were deserving and they were true, and likely most people in that chamber agreed with him. He immediately seeks forgiveness because he was unaware that Ananias was the high priest. Look at verse five. Paul said, I did not know brothers. Notice he calls them Brothers. Term of endearment, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, he quotes here, Exodus 22, verse 28, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul immediately seeks forgiveness for the truthful words that he uttered against God's high priest because he was God's high priest, even though he was a most corrupt man. Now Ananias' conscience may have been seared, and he had no problem striking Paul against God's law in this gathering of the Sanhedrin. But Paul's conscience was still sensitive. It was still subject to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even though what he said was true, he understood that speaking against the high priest, now listen, my beloved, this is a great doctrinal principle. Speaking against the high priest was against God's law, and therefore Paul had sinned against God first and foremost. And so he immediately, he receives, this is an amazing thing, he's being unjustly accused, he was already attacked, he was going to be flogged, And now he stands before this corrupt body and this corrupt high priest, and they strike him. If there were a time when Paul had a legitimate reason to justify breaking God's law, this would have been it, and he did not. Instead, he received the rebuke, and he sought forgiveness. He sought forgiveness because his primary concern, which should be our primary concern, was his standing before the living God. How was God the judge of judge, the creator of all that is unseen seen and unseen? How was the God of the creator of the universe, how was he going to judge Paul? And so Paul wanted to stand before them with a clear conscience. My beloved, the irony should not be lost on us as readers of this. Ananias, the high priest, ordered Paul to be struck, violating God's law, and he ordered it without hesitation. Paul, having been falsely accused of being anti-Israel, anti-law, and anti-temple, is struck against God's law, and he immediately receives the rebuke and seeks forgiveness. So once again, Dr. Luke is, is painting the picture of two men, two extreme pictures. One man with a title, very religious, but no interest in obeying God, and another man a prisoner with no title, but obeying God's commands and honoring those God had put in power out of his love for Jesus Christ. So I'll ask you before I go to my next point, is your conscience this sensitive when sin is brought to your attention? Is it? Even by those who may bring it inappropriately, even by your enemies, is your conscience so sensitive in the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ that when you hear it, you respond like Paul? So your sister comes and talks to you in love about her concern for you and your life as a Christian. Maybe she knows that that you're not very serious about your life in the church or you're not very serious about your time in the Word and that you've engaged in sinful behavior that she knows is displeasing to God. And she comes to you in love and she speaks these truths to you in love. And rather than receiving that counsel, you hear her and you make up excuses for why your life is not being lived out as the Scriptures clearly teach. You say, I'm too busy or... I have too many responsibilities or I've been a Christian for a long time. Or maybe your brother in Christ talks to you about your prideful speech and how you constantly lift yourself up by putting others down. And your brother wants to tell you this because your brother loves you. This is not even coming from an enemy. This is not coming from a corrupt high body. But a brother in Christ comes to you. And instead of you hearing and receiving that like Paul did in this moment before the Sanhedrin, you talk about how your brothers think it's funny and it's a a joke and you're just kidding and you're not serious. Instead of your conscience being sensitive and immediately seeking forgiveness for engaging in gossip or slander or self-exaltation. My beloved, if there were ever a time for Paul to use the unjustness of his circumstances or the evil behavior of Ananias to justify his whitewashed wall comment, this would have been it, but he does not. He immediately hears the rebuke. He immediately seeks forgiveness because he knows he stands before God first and foremost. He knows, my beloved, what David said so clearly against you and against you alone, David said, I have sinned, O Lord. Every single sin, Every single sin of yours is against God first and foremost. It impacts everybody else too, but it's against God first and foremost. And so, God had given Paul a conscience in Christ. right? A conscience to be rightly rebuked even by his enemies and to hear that and to evaluate his own heart and then respond according to the word immediately and faithfully. And by confessing his sins, he's able to be stand again. In that moment, in that very moment, he's able to stand with a clear conscience before the Sanhedrin. With the Spirit, the Word, and community, we are called to that same thing. Now, I don't know how well we do this, my beloved. I don't know how well, one, we communicate what we see in the lives of others in love. I don't know how we communicate it all, and I don't know how well we receive it. More often times than not, the general disposition of the flesh when someone comes to you in love is a defensive posture. It's an excuse or a justification rather than simply listening and saying, does that violate God's word? If so, forgive me, Lord. That's the, the right response by a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. So first I pray we see that God equips us to stand firm as faithful witnesses because he's given us a clear conscience in Christ. He equips us to that end. Second thing I want you to see that he equips us to be a faithful witness because of the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. Point number two, hope you're still with me, the hope of the resurrection. Look at verse six. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, he's speaking of the Sanhedrin, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the res- and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So the Sanhedrin the, the ruling body of Paul's day, the same ruling body of Jesus' day, it was made up primarily of two sects in Judaism at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were, they were quite different, even though they both claimed Abraham as their father and they both claimed to worship uh, the God of the Bible, they did it in a very different manner. The Sadducees, they were, they were the rich and powerful. They held the high seats, the, usually the high priest and the chief priests were held by the, the Sadducees. Uh, The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the the priests of the people. Um, They represented um, their interests primarily in the synagogues rather than the temple. Um, They were anti-Romanization, as opposed to the Sadducees, who were very friendly with Rome. Um, For obvious reasons, they received lots of perks, including money and positions of power. Theologically, they were also very distinct. The one primary one that Dr. Luke highlights here is the resurrection, the belief in the resurrection. The Sadducees, this is interesting. The Sadducees, who actually believed in the Torah, believed that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead, not spiritually or bodily. In fact, they went so far as to disagree with any type of spiritual realm. No demons, no angels. They believed in God, but it was a perverted understanding of the God of the Bible. The Pharisees, on the, understa- on the other hand, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in a bodily resurrection, and they believed that a spiritual realm not only takes place with demons and angels and a judgment day, heaven and hell, but they believed that these two worlds were interacting all the time. So the Pharisees were much closer to a biblical understanding of of the eternal realm and the powers that be than the Sadducees were. And so, Paul decides that he's going to draw upon his pharisaic roots and the hope of the resurrection in order to make an appeal to the gospel here. Look at the latter part of verse 6. Paul said, Brothers, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. He said, The only reason I'm here is because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead, which you believe two now some of the commentators think that paul was being extra savvy here and he says i'm gonna i'm gonna pit the sadducees and the pharisees together and they're gonna fight and i'm gonna get out i I don't think that was the case i really don't i think that paul paul was brought there by lysias to determine truth but they wanted to know what happened the day prior paul wants truth to come out as well he wants to know why he was uh, attacked by the jews and then almost scourged by lysias and I, I believe he wants the truth to be made known, and I also, I do believe, because this is the pattern of Paul, he wants the gospel to come out. Right? Paul's always looking for an opportunity. It doesn't matter who he's before for the gospel to be preached. And that's why Paul says what he says. He's gonna draw upon what, I mean, you, wanna, you want an intro? You want a segue? Let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can get there, you're gonna get right to the gospel, you're gonna get right to the cross. And I think that's why, why Paul does it. Now, he uses this opportunity And the false accusations, you remember what they were, that he was anti-Israel, anti-law, anti-temple. Back in chapter 21, the Turkish Jews that started the riot, they cried out, men of Israel, help! Speaking of Paul, this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, speaking of the temple. And so Paul brilliantly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he takes their false accusations and the reason why the riot took place the day before in the first place, and he reveals what Israel and the law and the temple ultimately stood for and what they pointed to, and that was the hope of the resurrection of God's people with God. He takes their accusations. He says, you don't understand. I hope in the resurrection and God's people and the law and the temple were all intended to point to the hope of the resurrection. God's people dwelling with God How long? Forever, forever. The entire idea of of the Old Testament, shalom, that true peace between God and man dwelling together. This was the hope of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 27. God said, My dwelling place shall be with them, speaking of his people, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Here's the hope of the resurrection. This was the purpose of the law, as you know, from the New Testament, as Paul said. The law was a tutor to what? a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's the primary purpose of the law. And the temple we know, the temple sacrifices to point to what? The need for the atonement of sin. Sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, pointing to the need for an ultimate sacrifice, a savior, the son of David, the Messiah that they were waiting for, who had already come in the person of Jesus Christ. This was all taught in the Old Testament. Job chapter 19 Job says, for I know that my Redeemer lives, speaking of Christ, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. Job, one of the earliest books in the Old Testament, knew about Christ, knew he was going to die, knew that Christ was going to come and raise him from the dead bodily. You talk about profound doctrine early, early in human history. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, your dead shall live, Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, those who are in the grave, awake and sing for joy. So this theme of a bodily resurrection of the dead, of God's people, permeates Old Testament and New Testament. And unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed all this. They didn't believe it was Christ, not those who sat on the Sanhedrin, not yet anyway, but they had the same hope of the resurrection that Paul had. They believed that God's word taught it, because it did, a bodily resurrection, listen, for the people of God that would equip God's people to dwell with God in the presence of God forever and ever. My beloved, that, that is the end, is it not? I mean, that's the hope of every Christian, regardless of how difficult this life may be. The hope is the resurrection of the dead to be in the presence of God, worshiping God forever and ever. And Paul says, you believe that, Pharisees, so do I. He says, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial because of the same hope and the same belief that you have. In other words, he's saying, this is a real sham, is it not? You're accusing me of the same things that you believe, that you believe, and yet you accuse me of being against. So Paul, as we know, Paul was one of many Pharisees who came to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. Many Pharisees, because they believed in the resurrection and the bodily resurrection of Christ was true, they came to believe as well that the scriptures actually were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and that as the conqueror over sin and death and the new leader of God's people, Jesus Christ offers, as you know, a resurrection hope freely by grace through faith in him. In other words, the charges against Paul were not only false, but the entire incident the day before about Israel and the law and the temple actually pointed to the same resurrection that these Pharisees believed to according to God's law. Now what followed from this was just mayhem. Look at verse seven. And when he, speaking of Paul, had said this, he didn't get far in his gospel testimony, the apostle Paul in this one. Not gonna have a lot of dialogue with the Sanhedrin. When he said this, a commotion, a a dissension arose, a commotion. They were getting busy. Between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so theology now comes center stage into this argument, and Dr. Luke reveals the crux of the problem, and it was central. It was focused on the resurrection of the dead. You can't get that wrong, my beloved. You get that one wrong in our faith, and you get the whole gospel wrong. Verse 9, So the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees did not. Verse 9, then a great clamor arose, a great clamor. It's like something from a Christmas carol, right? Uh, they were yelling at each other. They were screaming at each other. They were, they were physically going at each other. All right, so we have, a, we have a little mini riot. Poor Elysius, he tries to find answers about the riot the day before, and he calls the Sanhedrin, and he has another riot on his hands, right? The, some of the scribes in the Pharisees party stood up, and they contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What, is, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? My beloved, this has, to be, this has to be one of the more ironic moments in the Apostle Paul's entire ministry. I mean, this is, this is incredible, and there is humor in this. These Pharisees, although they did not believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, who actually rose from the dead, these Pharisees come to Paul's defense and argue that he had done nothing wrong, and maybe, just maybe, Just maybe a spirit or an angel had in fact spoken to him to affirm the resurrection of the dead. It's fantastic. I mean, it's a fantastic scene. I imagine Paul's going, what is going on here? These very people who want him dead are now defending him even though they don't believe in Jesus Christ. Now, they were right. Paul had received a divine message, but it wasn't from a spirit and it wasn't from an angel. It was from God himself. It was from Jesus Christ himself, as you know, on the road to Damascus, the very one who rose from the dead, appeared to Paul testifying to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, when Christ came and revealed himself to Paul in the 500, before he ascended, he affirmed the possibility, the very real possibility that a man can be raised from the dead. And then he also affirmed that it would only be through him that a sinful man can be raised from the dead. And this is, this is what Paul was testifying to that Jesus Christ, as he said to Martha, I am what? I am the resurrection and the life. And as he said to the disciples in John 14, no one can come to the Father except through me, except through me, Jesus said, because he's the resurrection and the life. And so Paul was a product of this resurrection and hope. He he believed it as a Pharisee. He believed it theologically. His worldview as a Pharisee, his theology as a Pharisee was shaped by the hope of the resurrection. But now Paul, in Christ, post road to Damascus, now he knows it is true and he knows its power. And this is the great distinction between someone who believes in the resurrection and has experienced the resurrection in Jesus Christ already. And that is the power that comes with it. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, And here's here's the all-shaping influence of the resurrection on the life of a true believer. Paul said, for his sake, speaking of Christ, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that what? I may gain Christ. I want you to listen to Paul's heart. And be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he said this, why that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that i i that by any means possible i may attain to the resurrection from the dead that is the hope no resurrection from the dead your gospel's horrible if your end is a grave or a tomb or an urn then you have a horrible gospel and paul says my hope is attaining the resurrection that I might have Christ, gain Christ forever and ever. My beloved, this is is what empowered Paul to live as a faithful witness. This is why he was the sacrificial suffering servant of his King Jesus, because of the hope of the resurrection, that he would one day stand before his Lord and worship Him forever. It was the hope of the resurrection and gaining Christ that enabled Paul to live the life that he lived, And hope does that, does it not? Real hope does that. Sometimes false hope does too, but it doesn't last very long because it's false hope. But for those of you who have battled terminal illnesses, some of you who have had cancer and you've gone through the horrors of chemotherapy and radiation with the hope of what? With the hope of overcoming the cancer and living longer and enjoying your family and blessing the church and pursuing Christ, right? Some of you get up and you actually work many hours to provide for your family, and to protect and nourish your children. And you don't go to work because you love it. You go to work because you have a hope that by providing, your family will do well. Moms and dads, you raise your children, and sometimes it's really hard to raise our children. But you raise them, according to the word of God, in a faithless culture. You raise them in the faith with a great hope that what? That they too will come to a saving grace in Jesus Christ and become disciples of a king. And so we, we hope has this great opportunity to move us. And the hope here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ can enable you as it enabled Paul to be a faithful witness. If you're united with Christ, the same hope is yours. The same resurrection hope is yours and therefore the same power that comes with it to be that witness regardless of your circumstances even in this very blue place. All right, so we've seen that we can stand firm as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ, because one, we have a clear conscience. God's given that to us. Number two, we have the hope of the resurrection. Can I give you one more? I got one more, and, and, and I'm just gonna bring these two back to us again in a little different light. Um, we can be faithful witnesses here in a place like San Jose because God gives us the courage to be strong. God, God doesn't tell you, sinner, to be strong on your own. He doesn't. He calls you to be strong in him. Number three, point number three, I pray you're still with me, the courage to be strong. So in the presence of the Sanhedrin, things go from bad to worse. I imagine Lysias is thinking, I just can't get this right, and he couldn't. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, so they're going at it, the tribune, Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, Now, and he'd have been responsible for that because Paul's a Roman citizen, and therefore he'd have been in trouble again. He commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul's in the, caught up in the scuffle. We have, Luke doesn't give us the detail, but it's not good for Paul. And so the centurions go down, they grab Paul by force, they literally take him back up, and they take him to the barracks where he can be kept safe. And so Lysias makes a good decision here. He's had several bad decisions. This is a good one. Let's keep Paul safe until we figure out what to do and we'll see what happens next week on that. I'm sure Paul was thankful that Lysias intervened, but the Apostle Paul did not bank upon the centurions or Lysias or his Roman citizenship for his protection. He had put his faith completely in the sovereignty and goodness of God. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him speaking of Paul and said, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is a most extraordinary scene. Jesus Christ comes to Paul again, not, not as he had on the road to Damascus, and not as the vision that he had three years after his conversion in the temple, but he comes to him to give him a simple and beautiful word of encouragement. Now, for months, Paul had been told by the Holy Spirit, you got to go to Jerusalem, you had to go to Jerusalem, and then people were telling them. Remember, Agabus told them that. You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to testify to me, and you're going to be persecuted by the Jews. You're going to be persecuted by the Gentiles. All that has transpired, right? So Paul is at the end of the fulfillment of all of those prophetic words. And now God comes to Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, to tell him what, his next, um, what the next stage of the mission is. He says, I'm going to send you to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. Now, going to Rome... Encouraging him to press on to Rome it was in many ways a fulfillment of the command that Jesus had given in Acts chapter 1 and would fulfill the command for the gospel to go to the nations. Rome was the epicenter of mankind at that time. I mean, that was, that was the hub, that was the place. You've heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Well, they literally did. They led to the Roman uh, Empire. And so by sending Paul to Rome, Jesus is actively fulfilling. The words he said way back, if you remember, way back now, what are we, 52 weeks, 50 weeks back into Acts chapter 1, Christ, before he ascended, he said to the disciples this, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay? And so this is very much the the fulfillment of that plan. By Paul getting to Rome, where the church had already been established, and then as you know what happens in Western civilization, the Christianity goes out from Rome and it goes throughout the, the, the uh, Roman Empire. The reason that we have it here was through the gospel coming to Rome, and we are so thankful for that. And then, obviously, in the progression of Western civilization, literally, the gospel going to every tribe, tongue, and nation as we see today. And so this was the fulfillment of that plan, that great plan. We'll look at that a little bit more in the next coming weeks. The question I had was, why, why now... Why did Paul need this word of encouragement right now? Why did Jesus come, he didn't send an angel, he comes, literally stands next to Paul and says, be emboldened, take courage. It literally means to be emboldened inside, be courageous inside, stand firm in your heart. He you say, well, I, I understand why, Pastor, I, can't, I understand why you can't see this. It's been a rough few days for Paul. In three days, Paul, you know, after being received by James and the elders and the apostles, he comes in and he's all these false accusations say, Paul, he's anti-Israel, he's anti-law, he's anti-temple, and, the, and these Turkish Jews try to kill him. Well, that's, that's bad enough. And then he's rescued by Lysias, supposedly put in chains, he's going to be flogged. And then he thinks, okay, I have a breather. And the next day, he finds himself before the Sanhedrin, trying to tell the truth, trying to share the gospel, and he almost loses his life there. And so it's been a it's been a rough couple of days. I don't know what your last week's been like, but I don't think it was like this. I mean, Paul is just barely, barely living every single day. Um, but I, I don't believe that's the primary reason. I think Paul was just fine. I really do. Um, I think that Jesus came to encourage him because he had to go to Rome, and the next couple years was going to be really hard. The journey getting there, as we'll see in the next few weeks, was a very difficult journey. And then once he got there, Paul would spend two years Imprisoned in, in, in that context, but very limited in his ability to be a, uh, um, a missionary to the masses. And so Jesus comes knowing what's ahead of him. It's going to be a hard road. Paul's tired, and he says, stay encouraged. Be emboldened in your heart. And Christ says that to him because he wants him to press on And My beloved, I, I would argue that you have, you have no idea what lays ahead of you. You don't. You don't know what this week's going to look like this next year. You know, we are to walk by faith and not by sight. What we do know is this. The Bible teaches this, and certainly history testifies to this, that if you're going to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in this fallen world, it will be hard, without exception. It doesn't matter where you are, in the most peaceful Christ aren't in places. If you're going to faithfully follow Jesus and you're going to live according to his word and you're going to have a, a sensitive conscience to do what is right in the eyes of God, then it will be hard, especially in a place like San Jose, California. And so how can I leave you with a word of encouragement that you might be emboldened like the Apostle Paul so you can go back to your workplace or maybe your home if it's not a friendly place for Christ and be a faithful witness. I want to encourage you by this. Regardless of your circumstances, number one, your conscience is clear, past tense, because of the work of Jesus, and number two, your hope of the resurrection is guaranteed, right? I can encourage you, and I will only encourage you through the word of God. I can encourage you right now. Your conscience is clear right now, and your hope is guaranteed. So first, how is your conscience cleared? Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. He's battered and bruised, and he's able to say to them, look at the beginning of the latter part of verse one again. He's able to say to these religious leaders, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, we know Paul's history. He's certainly not claiming to be sinless. And he's not saying that he's done it right his entire life. In fact, he had already testified to that crowd that tried to kill him that he was the fire-breathing persecutor of the church, right? He was a murderer, literally exercising the power of murder, So he was not testifying to the fact that he had done it right. And we we just saw that he actually sinned against Ananias, violating God's word by making these accusations, even though true, against God's ruler. So Paul is not saying that he's good and his conscience is clear because he lived a moral life, listen, with all your might. His conscience is good and clear because of the work that Jesus completed for him on the cross. Oh, he had a clear conscience. But it wasn't because of Paul, it was because of Christ see, my beloved, the only way for a sinful man to have a good conscience, a clear conscience before a thrice holy God who must judge all sin is for that individual, for you, for me, for anyone to be saved, to have our sins forgiven and paid for, atoned for by God himself. It's the only way. The only way that you can say my conscience is clear before a holy God as a sinner is to have Christ as your atoning substitute. That's it. Able to take courage each and every day we are in the midst of great suffering even when we stumble in our sin we're able to be courageous in the midst of it all because we have the same power and the same grace that comes through a crucified savior your sins are forgiven they're paid in full they're paid in full there is no guilt that rests upon you if you are in christ by jesus dying in our place and experiencing the consequences we justly deserved for our sins. Our guilty consciences before Christ, they were guilty and deserving of sin. They have been, by his blood, wiped clean, white as snow. No more guilt. I want you to think about that for just a minute, my beloved. If you are in Christ, there is no more guilt on you. No more guilt for any sin that you have committed, are committing, or will commit before you see him in glory. The feeling of guilt is removed or ought to be removed because the guilt is removed. How can you feel guilty if guilt is not there? You ought not, you should not. No longer does the true believer have the weight of sin and the consequences on his or her shoulders. No longer must we worry whether or not we have fallen out of God's good grace because we lived in such a way or we're living in such a way. Being united with Christ Being united with Christ now means that your sins are forgiven and you're standing as a son or daughter in the family of God. Listen, this is a glorious part of our Reformed theology. It's set. It's fixed. You can't be unsaved, saints. You may not be saved, but you can't be unsaved if you are. You can't be disunited with Christ if you've been united with Christ. There's no going back, no losing one's salvation A clear conscience means you are free from any and all future punishment. And therefore, my beloved, oh, what power to be courageous. What power to be courageous, to be a faithful witness to Christ, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the danger you may be in. You may be brought before the Sanhedrin or a magistrate today. You may be accused of false crimes like Paul was. But your conscience is clear because Christ has cleared it for you by his blood. Hebrews chapter 10, 22, you've heard it read. Listen again. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings. That means we can walk in great power and faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. That's the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. You know Christ, your guilt is removed. You know Christ, your guilt is removed. So first I want to encourage you to be encouraged to follow Christ regardless of how hard that might be because your conscience, it is clean. It has been sprinkled. It has been washed. Sin no longer has any power over you because guilt is gone. Oh, my beloved, I know some of you very well and you need to hear this. You still hold on to old sins. You still revel in things that you used to do. You still deal with a sin that you confessed clearly last week and you're holding on to it. It is no longer there. Christ paid for it in full, and therefore we are to walk in that freedom. And it is a free thing to walk with a conscience that has been cleared by Christ. I'll give you one more and I'll close. You ought to be encouraged because in Christ, you don't just have a hope of the resurrection, your resurrection is guaranteed. You know that? You hope in what is guaranteed in Christ. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead too, but their hope was based upon their efforts before God. Were they faithful children of Abraham? Were they part of the remnant? They had to daily, they were bound by daily sacrifices and cleansings and, and rituals and religious practices. And the, the Pharisee never really knew, is that hope guaranteed? They didn't have it. That's why they sacrificed over and over. There was no certainty of attaining it. Not so the Christian. The Christian must not be afflicted by uncertainty of the hope of the resurrection. Your hope of being resurrected from the dead to enjoy eternal life with God, which is your end in Christ, is not listened with all your might. It's not contingent upon your works or your religion. It's not contingent upon how, how often you read your Bible or how frequently you pray or whether or not you're a faithful member of a church. All those things important but your hope in the resurrection is contingent upon the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and then applied to you by faith. That's your hope. Did he accomplish that work and has it been applied to you by faith? Faith, not works, is your guarantee. Trusting in Jesus, not your religion, is your sure foundation of eternal life with God forever and ever. My beloved, what an encouraging word for us today, regardless of what these past few weeks or months or even years have looked like for us. If you've placed your hope and your trust in Jesus, your future is set, and it is a glorious future. It's, it's so glorious. Your destiny is secure. Your future resurrection. it's not a matter of if. It's not if you're in Christ. It's when. When will it happen? That's, we don't know that yet. We don't know that for, for ourselves or for all mankind, but it's not if, it's when. So do you see why Jesus commands Paul to to be encouraged, to be emboldened. No guilt in Paul's life and a guarantee of resurrection to eternal life with God. Now that's a life, my beloved, that will be a faithful witness and testify to a dark world. A guilt-free, listen, here's your your marching orders today. A guilt-free, eternally optimistic life in God is what God calls us to live now guilt-free, eternally optimistic. I don't know there's going to be any better witness to Christ in a fallen world than this. You leave those doors and you said, my, my guilt is no more, Christ paid for it, and my resurrection secure, you'll be bold. You'll be courageous, regardless of what comes your way. Paul, the former persecutor of the church, he had no guilt on him. Jesus had washed him clean. When Paul sinned against Ananias, He confessed his sins because he knows that God is faithful and just. And well what? He'll he'll cleanse us of our sins and purify us for all unrighteousness. Paul did not have to run to the temple and offer sacrifice for, for breaking the law speaking against Ananias. He had Christ as his sacrifice. Christ completed that work for him. Paul was not worried about his life. He was not worried about being imprisoned. He wasn't worried about losing his life. Why? His future was secure. And he knew that. He knew it wasn't just a hope, it was guaranteed because of the faithful work of Jesus Christ. What was true for Paul, my beloved, is true for you if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, there is no hope of a resurrection to eternal life, only to eternal judgment. But if you are in Christ, then there's no reason for you to be a guilt dweller you know who you are. You know who you are. You guilt dwellers allowing your past sins to strip you of your joy and your security in Christ. Always saying to I don't know if I'm saved. I think I was saved yesterday. I don't know if I'm saved today. I hope I'm saved tomorrow. That's gibberish. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. If you're in Christ, you are in Christ. Resurrection is guaranteed. Your conscience is cleared by the blood of Jesus. Guilt keeps us from being the faithful servants God calls us to be. Guilt keeps us from enjoying Jesus now and going out and testifying to the world how glorious this king is. Guilt keeps us from using our gifts and talents for the for the benefit of the church. I'm going to tell you in love, stop. Your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment, no punishment, no guilt. Can I get one amen for that? Okay, thank you. <laughs> So if you're filled with anxiety, if you tiptoe around life, you're thinking, oh, I might sin, and if I sin, I'm not going to be forgiven. God is so holy. Stop. Stop it all. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You're going to sin. You're going to stumble. Do what Paul did. Hear. Be rightly convicted. Confess your sins to God. And God, in that moment, he forgives you completely, and he washes you again and again, and will all the way into heaven. So we don't need to dwell on sin. When we sin, we confess, we turn, and we are healed. If you're overwhelmed with all the evil you see, and you have a desire to run, I know this past week, I don't know how we talk about it when you think about 19 babies. It's too much. If your desire is to hide or to flee as a witness of Christ, that's a fleshly desire. If anything, in times like this, Christians need to step out and be the most bold witnesses how desperately this world needs Christians like the Apostle Paul, just like you, knowing that your conscience is cleared and the hope of the resurrection is secure, so you can go out and you can go into these neighborhoods and you can go into your workplaces and you can go to your own families and you can testify to the power and majesty and beauty of Christ. You can be that faithful witness, my beloved. You can be. And if you keep telling yourself you can't or someone is whispering that in your ear, maybe Satan himself, then cast that out entirely. Your hope is secure and you can be, we can be collectively the, the witnesses to Christ, this world so desperately needs, so desperately needs. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, John 640, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will, Christ promises, raise Him up on that day. Jesus said, I will, and He will. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take the teaching from this passage and you would at this very moment cause it to change the way we think and the way we feel and the way we relate. I pray, Father, that you would use this time for your glory in the Spirit to make the members here at Christ Community Church... The most brilliant witnesses, the most bold witnesses, the most encouraged witnesses in the entire South Bay. As we face trials on every side and we we live in a place that is hostile towards you, truly anti Christ, anti gospel, I pray that you would embolden us, as you did the Apostle Paul so many years ago, to stand firm, to be the people you've called us to be. We have the same Holy Spirit the same scripture, the same community of brothers and sisters to embolden us to this end. Let us be those people, Father. Let this week be a different week for us. I pray, Lord, that as we bring a witness to those who do not know you, you would use us to save them, save our family, save our neighbors, save our coworkers, save our friends, so they too might not have a false hope Of a resurrection like the Pharisees, but will have a guaranteed hope in Christ. I ask you to do this for your glory, Father. Make yourself known in this place through this church. In Christ's name, amen.